0: Chapter twelve of six feet four by Jackson Gregory. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twelve Rattlesnake Pollard. It was barely noon, the air clear, the sky cloudless, when Winifred Waverly rode into Hill's Corners. She had shaken her head at the suggestion of further escort here in the open country and in the full sunlight she was grateful for the opportunity of being alone at the foot of a gentle eminence she entered the narrow winding street of the town a crooked little town physically both in the matter of this meandering alley-like thoroughfare and in the matter of the hastily builded unprepossessing houses a crooked town in its innermost character it was easy to believe on either hand as she rode forward were low squat ugly shacks jammed tight together or with narrow passageways between their unlovely walls these spaces more often than not cluttered and further disfigured by piles of rusty tins old clothing and shoes and other discarded refuse as she rode farther, she saw now and then the more pretentious buildings—some with the false fronts which deceive nobody—the houses appearing shoddy and aged and sinister, one here and there deserted and given over to ruin, disintegration and spiders spinning unmolested in dark corners. The next peculiar impression created upon her was that some evil charm was over the place that in the sweet sunlight it lay drugged that in those rows of slatternly shacks where the sunlight did not enter men either hid in dark secrecy or lay in some unnatural stupor the whole settlement seemed preternaturally quiet the fancy came to her that the town had died long ago and that she merely looked on its ghost she had shrunk before now at the thought of men coming to the doors to stare after her and perhaps even to call coarsely after her now it seemed the dreariest thing in all the world to ride down this dirty muddy street and see no man or woman or child not so much as a saddled horse at a hitching pole she came abreast of the most pretentious building of Hill's Corners. Its swing doors were closed, but from within she heard a low, monotonous hum of languid voices. Upon the crazy false front, a thing to draw the wondering eye of a stranger, was a gigantic and remarkably poorly painted picture of a bear holding a glass in one deformed paw, a bottle in the other while the drunken letters of the superfluous sign spelled the brown bear saloon almost directly across the street from the brown bear was a rival edifice which though slightly smaller was no less squat and ugly and which bore its own highly ambitious sign a monster hand clutching a monster whiskey glass with the illuminating words beneath the here's how saloon that the two works of art were from the same brain and hand there was no doubting in the inscriptions the n's and s's were all made backwards presenting an interesting and entirely suitable air of maudlin drunkenness the girl hurried by there were other saloons so many so close together that Used as she was to frontier towns, she wondered at it. She saw other buildings whose signs informed her they were store and post office, drugstore, blacksmith shop, and restaurant. And now the first visible token of life, a thin spiral of smoke from Dick's Oyster House. She passed it, pushing her horse to a gallop. She had seen the two or three men upon the high stools at the counter taking their coffee and bacon. They had swung about quickly, like one man, at the cook's grin and quiet word. One of them even called out something as she passed, another laughed. As she rode down the tortuous street, fairly racing now, the blood whipped into her face, she caught a glimpse of a man standing by his horse, preparing to swing up into the saddle. His eyes followed her with a look in them, easy to read and unpleasant, something too ardently admiring to be trusted. She had seen the man's face. He was a big man, broad and straight and powerful, builded like a Vulcan. He was branded unmistakably as a rowdy, his very carriage a sort of conscious swagger the bold impudence of his face told that the laughing face stood out before her eyes as she rode on evil and reckless and handsome with very bright blue eyes and hair curling in little yellow rings about the forehead from which the hat was pushed back it was her first glimpse of the youngest of the bedloe boys the worst of them, the kid. She knew that she would find her uncle's house at the end of the street. Mr. Templeton had told her that, and had described it so that she could have no problem in knowing it. And as she rode on, making the curve of the long crooked lane, which had come to be known as Dead Man's Alley, she found time to wonder that such a town could be so silent and deserted WITH THE SUN SO HIGH IN THE SKY. FOR SHE HAD NOT LEARNED THAT HERE MEN DID IN THEIR WAY WHAT MEN DO IN LARGER CITIES. THAT THEY TURNED THE DAY TOPSY-TURVY, THAT THE STREET SEETHED WITH SURGING LIFE THROUGH LATE AFTERNOON AND NIGHT AND THE DARK HOURS OF THE MORNING, THAT THE SALOON STOOD BRIGHTLY LIGHTED THEN, THAT THEIR DOORS WERE FILLED WITH MEN COMING AND GOING that games ran high voices rose high while life as these men knew it ran higher still at last she came to henry pollard's house it stood back from the street in a little yard notable for the extreme air of untidiness the rank weeds gave it and for its atmosphere of semi desertion among its few stunted twisted unpruned pear trees the fence about it had once been green but that was long long ago the doors were closed the shades close drawn over the windows the house still and gloom infested even in the sunlight stronger and higher within her welled her misgivings for the first time she admitted to herself that she was sorry that she had tried to do this thing which mr templeton had told her was madness she hesitated sitting her horse at the gate with half a mind to whirl and ride back when she had come and then with an inward rebuke to her own timidity she dismounted and hurried along the weed bordered walk and knocked at the door there came a quick answer, a man's voice, heavy and curt, crying, "'Who is it?' "'Are you Mr. Pollard?' she called back, her voice a little eager, more than a little anxious. "'Yes.' There was a note as of excitement in the voice. "'Is that you, Winifred?' "'Yes, Uncle. I—I—' I... She faltered hesitated and broke off pitifully she had heard the eagerness in pollard's voice guessed at what it was that he was thinking knew that now she would have to tell him that she had failed in the errand which he had entrusted to her that she had let a man rob her of the five thousand dollars of which he stood so urgently in need oh why had she attempted to do it why had she not listened to mr templeton and now what would her uncle say just a minute winifred i'm a little under the weather and am in bed now she heard no footsteps yet there was the noise of a wooden bar being drawn away from the door come in you'll pardon me being in bed my dear and fasten the door after you will you please she stepped across the threshold and into the darkened house her heart beating quickly as she slipped the bar back into its place she saw that there was fastened to the end of it a cord which passed through a pulley over the door and then ran down the hallway disappearing through another door at the left so following the cord she went on slowly. The outside of the house had given her a certain impression. Now, in a flash, that impression was superseded by a new one. Here was the home of a man of means. The heavy, rich furniture spoke of that. The painting there in the living room, into which she glanced. The tastefully papered walls. The thick carpet muffling her footfalls if only the curtains were thrown back if only the sun were looking in upon it all and now the man henry pollard whom she had not seen since she was a very little girl and then only during his short visit at her father's house struck her as being in some way not entirely unlike this habitation of his a gentleman gone to seed was that it his manner was courteous, courtly even, his speech soft, his eyes gentle, as they rested upon her, gentle and yet eager. There was something fine about his face, about the eyes and high forehead, and yet alongside it there was something else which drove a little pain into the girl's eyes. The mouth was hard. There were deep set lines about it and about the eyes there was a hint of cruelty which not even his smile hid entirely and though she strove to smile back bravely as she came forward to kiss him she knew that she was disappointed and a little uneasy she knew that henry pollard must be about fifty she saw that he looked to be sixty he had pulled himself up against his pillows and had drawn on a dressing-gown to cover his shoulders. He was well-groomed. He had a shave yesterday. He did not look sick, but he did look old, like a man who had aged prematurely and suddenly. And he did look worried and tired, as though he had not slept well last night. "'I am alone just now,' he smiled. "'Mrs. Riddell is keeping house for me. "'But I heard her go out a little while ago. "'For something for breakfast, I suppose. "'You're looking well, Winifred. "'I knew you would be pretty. "'Now sit down.' "'No word yet of her errand, "'no as to its success. "'She was grateful to him for that. "'She wanted a moment.' time in which to feel that she knew him a little bit before she could tell him. But she saw in his eyes that he was curbing his eagerness, and that she would have to tell him in a moment. "'I am sorry that you are sick, Uncle Henry,' she said hastily, taking the chair near his bed. "'It isn't anything serious, is it?' "'No, no!' His answer was as hasty as her question had been. "'Just rheumatism, Winifred. I'm subject to it here of late.' Then she saw that he had sat stiffly, that his shoulder, the left shoulder, was carried awkwardly and was evidently bandaged. "'I'm sorry,' she said again, and then, determined to tell him before he should ask, uncle i oh it was so hard to say with him looking at her with those keen bright eyes of his you should have got some one else to help you i have failed i have lost your money for you she dropped her face into her hands trembling striving to keep her tears back feeling now as she had not felt before as if she had been altogether to blame for all that had happened, as though it had been her carelessness that had cost her uncle his five thousand dollars. And when at last he did not speak, and she looked up again, she saw that his eyes had not changed, that there was no surprise in them, that if he felt anything whatever, he hid it. Don't cry about it, my dear, he said gently. He even smiled a little. Tell me about it. You were robbed of it? Before you had more than got out of light of dry town? "'How do you know?' she cried. "'I don't know, my dear, but I do know that the stage came on through with no attempt at a hold-up, and I guessed that our little ruse didn't fool anybody.' When I got the empty strong box from the bank, I knew pretty well what to look for. But, she told him, flushed with her hope, we'll get it back, for I know who robbed me. I can swear to him. Pollard's hand, lying upon the bedspread, had shut tight. She noticed that, and no other sign of emotion. And I know. He said harshly yes i'll get it back now tell me how it happened it was a man named buck thornton she saw the quick change of light in his eyes and in the instant knew that if buck thornton hated henry pollard he was hated no less in return further she saw that back of the hatred there was a sort of silent laughter as though the thing she had said had pleased this man as no other thing could have pleased him that in some way which she could not understand this information had moved him as he had not been moved by news of his heavy loss and she wondered you are ready to swear to that he asked sharply his eyes searching and steady and eager upon hers you will swear that it was thornton who robbed you yes she cried hotly as she remembered the insult of a kiss and in the memory forgot the robbery itself i'll get him now he muttered both ways going and coming tell me all about it winifred she began speaking swiftly telling him of her meeting with thornton at the bank of her suspicion that he had overheard her talk with the banker then of her second meeting with the man after she had seen him on the trail behind her the encounter at the Hart cabin a sudden banging of the kitchen door and he had stopped her abruptly putting his hand warningly upon her arm later it can wait that is mrs riddell she will show you to your room and it will be better my dear if you say nothing to her or to anyone else just yet she got to her feet and went to the door turning there to smile back at her uncle she saw that his pillows had slipped a little and that under them lay a heavy revolver and she surprised upon the man's face a look which was gone so quickly that she wondered if she had seen right in the darkened room, a look so filled with malicious triumph. Instead of being profoundly disturbed by the tidings of her adventure, the man appeared positively to gloat. Now, more than ever, did she regret that she had come to the town of Dead Man's Alley. End of chapter 12